Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So we haven't quite made up our minds yet about when it's right and when it's wrong to use the tools of medicine to enhance who we are. Steroids to win sports, wrong. A nose job to be more beautiful, apparently not wrong. But what about chemicals that help students be better students? Well, we know that drugs like Ritalin and Adderall and Modafinil, which were designed as therapy for people who had trouble focusing or staying awake, are being taken by students now, not because they suffer from those actual deficits, but because they believe it gives them a competitive edge in the classroom, that it makes them, quote-unquote, smarter. And is that right or is it wrong? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are here at the George Washington University in partnership with FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, with four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against this motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the Jack Morton Auditorium at George Washington University, votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion, again, is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Please, first welcome Anjan Chatterjee. Anjan, uh, you are a professor at UPenn's Perelman School of Medicine and chair of neurology at Pennsylvania Hospital. Uh, you see patients, mostly patients who have cognitive disorders, but you also do research on the issue before us, questions of neuroethics and neuroaesthetics. And we're wondering, do you think that there's a day for you as a clinician when you will be prescribing drugs routinely, smart drugs to students as part of your routine practice? Well, it certainly could come to that. My students used to think that I was crazy for hassling with insurance companies uh, and that what I should do is open a boutique cosmetic neurology clinic in a fancy part of town. <laughs> Plans for that? Uh, let's see how it goes. All right. Good enough. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Anjan Chatterjee. And Anjan, please tell us who your partner is. My partner is the much smarter than any drug, Professor Nita Farahani. Ladies and gentlemen, Nita Farahani. 
Nita, you are a professor of law and a professor of philosophy at Duke, where you are also director of the Duke Science and Society program. You're arguing for the motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. But it's interesting to note um, that Duke came up with a ruling that the, quote, unauthorized use of prescription medicine to enhance academic performance, unquote, is cheating under its student code of conduct. Do you, do you see other universities following suit now? I certainly hope not. Uh, without forethought, Duke adopted this really ill-conceived policy instead of leading the way on being a college that empowers students to make choices about this issue for themselves. So maybe they'll be listening tonight. I hope we'll so. We'll see. All right, t- ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And we have two debaters arguing against the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Eric Racine. Eric, welcome. You are director of the Neuroethics Research Unit at IRCM, and you hold academic appointments at the University of Montreal and McGill. Um, Neuroethics, it's a relatively new area of study, and in fact, it didn't exist at your research group before you arrived there in 2006. Can you tell us in, in a sentence what neuroethics is? Sure. Very briefly, neuroethics is a new interdisciplinary field which studies ethical questions associated with neuroscience. So it's right on topic for tonight. Absolutely. And tell us who your partner is. My partner is the amazing philosopher, Nicole Vincent. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Vincent. And Nicole, you are also arguing against the motion, college students should be allowed to take drugs. You're a professor of philosophy and law and neuroscience at Georgia State. For several years, uh, you led a research project focused on cognitive enhancement, Uh, and moral and legal responsibility. In a related TED Talk in your native Australia, you started off by asking the audience that if there were a pill that could make everyone there more intelligent and smarter and more focused, would they take it? And the response was complete silence and then laughter. Was, Was that a yes from the audience? So I asked the question rhetorically, and I think everyone was expecting that there would be this rhetorical silence including the guy who calls out, yes! (laughs) Maybe you'll get some of those yeses tonight on our vote. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Let's move on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is this. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Arguing first for the motion, and you can make your way to the lectern, Nita Farahani, a professor of law and philosophy at Duke and member of the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. Ladies and gentlemen, Nita Farahani. First, colleges should empower students to make their own choices about how they will change their brains. There's a common saying in education that we should teach students how to think, not what to think. Teaching a student how to think encourages them to question their own beliefs and to question the claims that they are presented with. Being protective of students and telling them what to do to change their brains leaves students poorly prepared for life after college in a world that will present them with choices and with pressure. Polls of incoming college freshmen show that at least one in three has used smart drugs. We can pretend that this isn't a choice that large swaths of people are already making, or we can embrace that smart drugs are just one of the many ways that people exercise free choices in their lives. 
Colleges are incredibly well-positioned to equip students with the information and the skills necessary to balance the risks and benefits of taking or forgoing these drugs. It's time that we recognize that college students are moral agents, capable of acting freely and making judgments for which they can be praised, blamed, or held responsible. Look at what's happening in high schools around the country when bans on so-called dangerous substances are being made, thanks to a federal law prohibiting what can be served in school lunchrooms. Students have been caught bringing in, even selling, salt, pepper, sugar in schools to add taste to the bland and tasteless cafeteria food. This is the sad reality of what bans do in educational settings. They spur underground markets where the very goods prohibited become more alluring and go unchecked. This puts students at greater danger of taking tampered substances without the benefit of transparency. This says nothing, of course, about the frightening intrusion into private lives of college students to enforce a ban on smart drugs. Can you imagine regular screening and testing of students to try to detect taking these drugs? But I want to convince you of a second thing, that enhancing our brains is a social good worth pursuing, and a social good we pursue all the time. From coffee we drink first thing in the morning, the SAT prep classes we take to gain college admission, the music classes we enroll in, the basic nutrition we follow, the exercise we undertake, the classes we attend, all of these things change our brains, and that's a great thing. What if taking a smart drug gives us the capacity to study harder, longer, and better such that we cure cancer? Shouldn't we encourage rather than ban these opportunities? We shouldn't think of smart drugs like taking steroids in sports. Life isn't a competitive game where there are winners and there are losers and spectators on the sidelines. Improving our brains is inherently valuable in and of itself, and not because it offers some kind of competitive advantage for one person versus another. Improving our memory, our motivation, our concentration, our capacities improves our opportunities in life. You'll hear fear-mongering talks about coercion and the vulnerability of students tonight on being on the slippery slope toward a dystopia and a rat race of enhancements. These fear tactics are just that. Fear. Not only are smart drugs not bad, they may offer significant good. But regardless, it's up to college students as moral agents to decide for themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Nita Farahani. And our motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And here to make his opening statement against this motion, Eric Racine. He is director of the Neuroethics Research Unit and associate professor at the IRCM. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Racine. So tonight, I hope to convince you that we should reject the motion that we have before us. And this won't be a dogmatic stance on my behalf. I think the facts, the scientific facts and sound reasoning and policy bring us there. So first, smart drugs. Do they exist? It doesn't seem to be the case. There are no scientific reviews suggesting that these drugs are efficacious, that they actually improve cognition and intelligence in those who use them. Furthermore, we don't even know for whom they would work and what would be the risks entailed by their use on the long run. A second important piece of the proposition tonight is the allowing. Who should be doing the allowing? Should it be college students? Obviously, that would be a bit contradictory. Should it be college administrations? I, could, I think they could have vested interest in pressuring their students to use drugs to gain advantage. Uh, physicians? Probably not. Also, they could have also an interest in 
caring for the worried well. So I think this is really a question that we should be answering and tackling at the very highest level of moral and political analysis. It concerns all of us, because once, if ever, these drugs are out of the barn and start gaining more traction, all of us will be concerned. They will impact college environments, the workplace, and so on. Now, what are the moral criteria to assess if this is ethical? Should we be engaging in cognitive enhancement and the use of smart drugs? Two major moral positions have been put on the table. First of all, moral acceptability is basically capturing a basic set of concerns enshrined in liberal democracies. If, for example, tonight you were worried from the ethics standpoint, if ever college students would be free and autonomous in making such decisions, that's a concern reflected in moral acceptability. If you thought that perhaps we didn't have the data to suggest that these drugs were safe and efficacious, that's also a fundamental condition of basic moral acceptability. And we don't have these data. We don't have pilot studies about the autonomy of students. We don't have convincing data that these drugs work. So I think from the standpoint of moral acceptability, We need to reject the proposition. But furthermore, if you were concerned by other types of issues that we capture under the label of moral praiseworthiness, you could also be rejecting the motion. Uh, If, for example, from the ethics standpoint, you were worried that perhaps this is not a genuine way to achieve oneself, it is not a proper way to seek uh, self-fulfillment, that it's somehow cheating or threatening our moral ideals, That's a concern captured under the label of moral praiseworthiness. And the answer is no. No, because we haven't really debated this issue. We haven't made up our minds. We haven't been discussing with our neighbors and in public enough to really know if this is something we want to genuinely pursue. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. You've heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I'd like to introduce Anjan Chatterjee, professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine, chair of neurology at Pennsylvania Hospital, arguing for the motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Ladies and gentlemen, Anjan Chatterjee. People have the right to choose. Now, this is not the motion under consideration, but I would suggest this radical claim that college students are people. Of course, these choices have to be made with a certain amount of knowledge. And so what is the information? Eric correctly pointed out that the data that we have is woefully inadequate. What we do know is that most of these medications work on the catecholamine systems, and as best we can tell, these have effects on arousal, on attention, and sometimes on parts of our memory and parts of executive function. To the extent that there is data that some people actually improve with these medications, some studies suggest that people who are at the lower end of the distribution with some of these abilities, like working memory, actually improve more than people at the higher end of the spectrum. There are some people who think that these don't actually improve cognition, but these are really drive drugs, that they increase motivation, and people feel good about themselves and motivated to work harder. 
Adverse effects, as a physician, the thing I would be most concerned about would be cardiovascular effects. People can have cardiac arrhythmias, can have heart attacks, can even have sudden death. Well, there were two studies published in 2011, one in the Journal of the American Medical Association and the other in the New England Journal of Medicine, and basically found that the use of these kinds of stimulant medications did not confer any added risk, cardiovascular risk, as compared to non-user populations. But the point about all of this is that both the promise and the perils of smart drugs are probably overblown. Now, I'm an empiricist uh, by nature, and so what I would like to do, it looks like a fairly young crowd, for people in the audience that are either students now or have graduated from college in the last four years, raise your hands up and raise them real high so the people on the podcast can hear you. (laughs) Okay. If you... Anjan, just tell our listeners what percentage of the audience is raising its hands. I would say, I don't know, maybe 75, 80%. Would you agree with that? Yeah, maybe even more. All right, so keep your hands up. If you or someone you know has taken a smart drug, put down your hand. I think I see one, maybe two. So the cat is out of the bag. (laughs) Let's just be real about this. One might be concerned about the coercive conditions in which students want to take these kinds of drugs. One might be concerned about the fact that we live in intensely competitive times where there are winner-take-all environments where small incremental advantages produce disproportionate rewards. And we might be concerned about that, and I am. However, if one is concerned about that, we should be concerned about the social milieu in which we live And prohibiting drugs is not the solution to that. Take students seriously. Don't infantilize them. If you respect their autonomy, vote for the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Thank you, Anjan Chatterjee. And that is our motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And here, our final debater speaking against the motion in this round, Nicole Vincent, Associate Professor of Philosophy, Law, and Neuroscience at Georgia State University. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Vincent. I'm very much in favor of equality. But here is my worry. By providing equal access to these medications to everyone, all the things that we really value are going to be jeopardized. What are the arguments in favor of smart drugs? Presumably the arguments would go something like this. Here's one. Hey, maybe if I can have access to these medications, which don't have any bad side effects, maybe I can get through all the work that I need to get through quickly. And what then? Well, I'll have spare time, right? And why is that good? Because then I can go and do the things that I really want to do, spend time with my family. But would this actually happen? I don't think it would, and here's why. When you start taking these medications, and suppose that they work, and you think, great, now I want to make sure that I'll get this work done, and in half the time maybe, and then I'll go off home. Do you think everybody else is going to do this as well? Or do you think some people might say, ha, I'm going to work as much time as I would have, but I'll now get much better grades. Some people might say, actually, look, guess what? I'm still not tired. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to make sure that I get awesome grades. Unfortunately, their actions are going to force you to not be able to get the very thing that you wanted, the extra time, time with family, time for you to relax. They're going to force you to have to also give those things up through competition. Maybe you can get better grades, get that really awesome job, right? 
But remember, if everyone has access to those awesome medications, the ones that work for everyone, all of us get exactly the same advantages. So all the people who could get into those lovely professions, it's still them who can only get into those professions. So unless you get a head start, you're an early adopter, you won't get the advantage. But think of what happens if you do get the early advantage. Well, you initially extend your reach and you get into that position. But then you've gotten into this new cadre. You've made life more difficult for them. The more people like you get into that particular cadre, the more they're going to feel like, man, now I've got to compete harder. Either they work harder or they say, draw the obvious conclusion, also take the smart drugs. The longer you remain committed to this position, all that's going to happen is that more people will enter into this particular field and start using smart drugs for exactly those same reasons. Eventually, once everybody else is on smart drugs, we'll simply go back up to the same normal. Everybody is going to equally benefit. It doesn't strike me that either of those strategies is going to actually get us those things that we want. If anything, they may even lead us to disaster. The cost is that when you insert smart drugs into the equation, into a really competitive society, what you are doing is you are increasing competition. You're making it possible for some people to up the ante even more. The amount of time that you're going to have to do all those other things isn't going to be greater, it'll be less. If you care for all the other things in your life, think about what you will be using to purchase that lifestyle. I only came to this country two and a half years ago, and I've lived in six countries. People here work so hard, harder than any other country I've lived in. Do you really want to take smart drugs that are going to make you into even better oiled machines, getting rid of all the time in your life and not be able to get all the things that make life worth living? Thank you very much. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Now we move on to round two, and round two are where the debaters address one another in turn, and they also take questions from me and from you in our live audience here at George Washington University. Again, the motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. The team arguing for the motion, Nita Farahani and Anjan Chatterjee, are arguing that, first of all, it's a matter of choice. There's a philosophical argument to be made here that college students are grown-ups. They can make decisions on their own, that colleges should be encouraging students to make smart choices in their capable of doing so. They also argue that it's a good thing to have smarter students. It's good for the students and it's good for society overall. On the science, they concede that the data is inadequate, but that the tendency of the studies that do exist show that the concern about side effects is greatly exaggerated, that in fact the perils are as overblown as the promise. The team arguing against the motion, Eric Racine and Nicole Vincent, they are also arguing both philosophically and scientifically. On the science side, They are very concerned that the studies do not tell us even that smart drugs really exist. It's not clear that they work. The side effects are not determined, and that for that reason alone, the moral acceptability of these, this use of these drugs is unacceptable. And they also make a philosophical argument about the distorting impacts on society. If we move to a world where everybody's dosing themselves to get smarter, it's not going to be a very pleasant place to live, that there would be, in a sense, an arms race for this kind of medication, and the winners and losers would still be winners and losers based probably on their their means and access to these drugs. I want to go through uh, both the scientific and the philosophical arguments, but starting with the science side, since it's a little bit more concrete. And I found it interesting, Anjan Chatterjee, that on the one hand, 
you conceded, you used the word the data being inadequate, and it's actually your opponent's argument that that by itself is reason for serious concern about these drugs to the point that they don't think students should be taking something when we actually don't know, number one, that they work, number two, just how harmful they can be. Can you respond to that point? Sure. Um, We always make decisions under uh, conditions of ambiguity. What concern me the most have to do with side effects, uh, and particularly the cardiovascular side effects, I think what we have is fairly convincing that that is not such a big area to be concerned about. Whether they have benefits, um, for some people it seems that they do. Uh, I agree the data are not there. But the, the decision of whether to take a drug or not, for me, is largely predicated on the worry about side effects. On the one hand, you're not saying that there's a whole lot of evidence one way or the other and your opponents are suggesting we err on the side of caution, you're saying that level of caution is not necessary? If the caution is driven by concern about side effects, is not warranted. All right, let's take it to your opponents, Eric Racine. Well, I, I think it's also important to acknowledge that we also lack data on the efficacy of these drugs. Risk could be you know, fairly moderate to low, but why do something which may involve moderate risks, but actually pans out to nothing? And Eric, when you say efficacy, you, you're not talking about them as a therapy for people who actually Absolutely have deficits not. of attention. Exactly. You're talking about whether they make people who don't have an attention deficit disorder get sort of super focused. You're saying that evidence doesn't exist. Exactly. You know, and one concerning aspect of the data uh, alluded to in the discussion is the fact that these drugs could enhance motivation. You could be more eager to work. Yet those effects could be those also responsible for uh, their addictive properties. So, you know, there are things we don't know about these drugs, and if there's actually nothing panning out in terms of benefits, it's not worth the risk. Nita Farhani. I appreciate that uh, Anjan is cautious in his conclusions, but um, the data are better than uh, I think Anjan gives credit to. And so uh, a recent meta-analysis that was just published about modafinil showed, in fact, uh, it does appear to be efficacious. It does seem to work and help. And I can attest as somebody who has tried modafinil that it is something that, in fact, does improve for me personally, my wakefulness, my ability to concentrate. It's, it's, it's a, Just to clarify for people, it's a, it's a medication that was developed to fight narcolepsy. The it tendency was, to it fall was asleep. developed to fight narcolepsy. It has been tested in Air Force pilots. It has been tested in the broader population. There are quite a few studies that show that not only does it improve things like motor coordination, but also potentially performance IQ. And it appears to come without the kind of jittery side effects that things like caffeine do. And Nicole Vincent, your argument is sort of data neutral. I mean, you're, you're, you're actually imagining a world where they solve all of these problems and you still think the problem would exist. I still think the problem would exist. And I'll, but I'll, I'll just make two comments. Notice that when people talk about motivation, that modafinil increases your motivation to be able to work. Here's basically uh, what it does. If you've got a very boring task, it'll make it a lot easier for you to do. That's, that's what that means, right? And that's kind of cool, because there's loads of boring tasks we all have to do. Um, only problem with that is that's precisely the kind of scenario that troubles me about the future. If I can't notice the fact that the things that I'm doing are extraordinarily boring, maybe even useless, like, you know, no meaning, that's a good reason for me not to do that, not, not to become blind to that. Prohibition based on risks is not based on the idea that I'm going to tell somebody who wants to take the risk that you're not allowed to. That's not the idea, right? The idea is the same as what happened with doping in sports, that I don't want those people to take the medications and then push everybody to have to do that as well, to coerce them. 
and diminish their freedom because somebody decided to do that. Let's take that to, to your opponent, uh, Anjan Chatterjee, the, the argument that there would be a sort of arms race of medication, that if, if you, you may not want to, but if you want to stay in the game and everybody else is, you have to get into it. There already is an arms race. And is that a good thing? And it might not be a good thing. But I do want to make one point about what Nicole said, because you said her claims were data neutral, and I think they were not completely data neutral. I think one claim she made was that these medications actually increase people's competitiveness. And I would suggest the use of these medications don't increase people's competitiveness. They are an epiphenomenon of the competitive environment in which we find ourselves. Um, so is, to, put that, into, to put that into English, I would understand. Okay, so what that means I think is, I can actually do it. You're saying that people aren't, take, people aren't becoming more competitive because they're taking drugs. They're taking drugs because they're more competitive. Right, exactly. Yeah. And as, so if that's your concern, deal with the competitive nature of our society. Dealing with the drugs is just yeah, dealing but, with but, the but, surface. But, but she does make a very good point on this issue of the comparison to sports, that where there are rules that say this is cheating, and people start to cheat because other people are cheating in order to be able to stay in the game. And, and that's a compelling argument. What do you make of that? Let's take it to Nita Farhani. I take Nicole's position to basically be an anti-competition argument um, and that she would like to have us all be somehow equal. I think it is true that society continues to progress. That's a wonderful thing. We could call that a bad thing, that it forces us to keep up. But I bet most of you in this audience, if not all of you, have smartphones, and those smartphones have enabled you to do lots of things, including remember things that you would never remember, like lots of people's phone numbers. I suspect that many people actually took things like an SAT prep course, and many people did things like read to their children or were read to as a child. All of these things improve humanity by enabling us to get to the next step in life, to get to the next stage of our evolution as a society and as a people. And you can call that competition, you can call that forcing, or you could call that opportunities that open a world of right. avenues me, for each me, of us. Let me take that to Eric Racine. Your opponents are saying that your, your team is not only anti-competition, but you're in a sense anti-progress. <laughs> I, I feel like I need to say something about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I think we're clearly not. I think we're committed to, uh, you know, what science says and what kind of evidence we have about the impact of the use of these drugs on social environments like college environments. And we actually don't have much data on that. So we're just saying, you know, wait a minute. It is true that in some cases we allow things to mitigate the risks. We try to curtail a practice which is socially problematic by you know, trying to mitigate the risks and reduce the harms to society. But clearly we're not in such a situation. People who use these drugs to enhance their kind of performance are very few. So allowing would actually mean But you're, are you really saying it's very few when we saw the show of hands? Uh, I, you know, the, the data that we have on the general population suggests that this is something marginal, and something which is actually, actually conflated by the fact that when the data are gathered on the non-medical uses of these drugs, partying, getting high on the drugs, and sometimes also you know, studying better. So it's all messed up in terms of prevalence data that would actually inform us on the trend. So I think if we're really concerned about you know, the extent of the practice and we think that allowing would be a way to inform and mitigate, actually, no, I think we're promoting because at this point there are so few... Uh, doing this, that um, we're just basically making it, we're, we're you know, publicizing it, I think. Nita Farhani. Students should be equipped with the information about what the side effects and the benefits are. 
They should be equipped to decide and evaluate that information. And if colleges are in the business of nannying rather than educating, they're taking a moral position about what they think students should do rather than teaching students to think for themselves. And it would be perfectly fine, if not legitimate, for people to decide not to. To Eric's point, many already do. These drugs are available. To be voting against the resolution would be voting to change the status quo. I think one of the mistakes is to assume that when a person chooses to excel in an academic environment or in some other way that is competition-driven, that that is somehow not their value, and that when they spend time with their children or their families, um, although I hope that not that many college students have children uh, at this stage, that they are somehow not choosing their values. But in fact, competition is just a value that they're choosing to maximize. If they're choosing to get ahead because they will create more opportunities for themselves, for their families, for their lives in the future, they are choosing to prioritize that value over some other value. If they decide they'd rather study or work harder, they're choosing to prioritize that over partying and drinking. And I think that's great. That's the whole idea is that people should be able to make those choices, evaluate their own values, decide which ones they want to maximize and which ones they don't. I just don't believe that creating competition forces people to give up everything about who they are. It gives them the opportunity to advance, to flourish, and creates more opportunities for society and for individuals. I'm John Donvan. Questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing out over this motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. All right, let's go to some questions from the audience. And a mic's coming down the aisle to you, and if you can stand up and tell us your name. Hi, my name's Michelle, and I'm a student at Georgetown University. What do you think are the socioeconomic implications of viable smart drugs and the possible stratification of knowledge between social classes? Okay, I want to take that to Nicole Vincent, because that's... That, that's that's your slow pitch on that one because that's your topic. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. But they get to respond. Okay, so notice that the things that I'm drawing attention to have to do with the way in which people will compete, right, and the degree to which uh, people may simply not be able to resist the sorts of pressures that Nita characterizes as pressures which don't impinge on freedom. When somebody you know, points a gun at my head and says, Nicole, money or your life, and I choose to say, okay, money. Did I freely choose that? I guess. People who are already disadvantaged people who already don't have a lot of political power, they are the ones that are most likely to be put in the situation of having their employers trying to squeeze out yet more value. Even examples like in Australia, where cabin crew were saying, hey guys, don't make us work for 20 hours a day because it's unsafe. This is on a budget carrier. Well, imagine if the employer had said, oh, you're right, thanks for pointing that out. We don't want to have accidents, bad for the airline. Here, now it's a condition that you take modafinil. You're no longer unsafe. That's not something that I want to see happening. People who are already marginalized becoming yet more marginalized. All right, let's let your opponents respond to that. Uh, Anjan Chatterjee. So um, on the resources question, it's a little unclear how that plays out. These drugs are not expensive. Students will tell you they can get them uh, fairly cheaply, uh, probably for the price that they might spend at a Starbucks for a latte. So... Resources in that concrete sense is not, I think, as much of an issue. I think sometimes it is hard to predict how this resource question plays out. And I'll give you an example, which is that when 
drugs like Ritalin first came on the market, the concern was that these would be used in schools in poor neighborhoods. So rather than bringing resources to the schools to manage uh, students, that we would chemically straitjacket them. That was the concern. What has happened? They are rampant in high-end, affluent schools and are not really used in lower socioeconomic schools. We're not very good at predicting how this plays out over time. Eric, Christine, do you have a thought on this as well? I think it is an important concern. It's a little bit hard to predict how this could play out. I'd be concerned about its impact on uh, the general well-being and, and, you know, of work environments. Uh, More stress, more ability to perform doesn't, you know, necessarily trade off to better work necessarily. So I think we should be careful. I'm going to go to another question down front here. Uh, Mark Naturno, I'm a fellow at the Interactivity Foundation. Uh, of the prohibition against uh, athletes using performance enhancement drugs, which I think is perfectly analogous to this, you know, the, the, what, the tension between your acceptance of the prohibition of athletes using performance so are, enhancement drugs. Are you asking sort of like, what's the difference, uh, Nita, between athletes not being allowed to take drugs and everybody agreeing that that's cheating and your argument that it's okay for students to do the same thing for, to so, enhance so first their of all, performance? I, I wouldn't prohibit athletes from taking it. So, I mean, to start with, I think that's the starting place. But it's different in two important ways for me. One is the effects of steroids are different than the side effects of smart drugs. Smart drugs appear to be much safer, much um, more tolerable, and have far fewer implications long-term for life. The second is I feel like if we want to pick whatever it is we want to buy tickets to and celebrate, we can set whatever rules we want for that game. We can say this is a game, and we, the spectators, have decided that what we want is to celebrate honed talent that is natural. It's arbitrary, but we could decide that. We could just as easily decide we only want to watch people who are enhanced. That would be okay. I don't think life and cognitive abilities are the same as improving your performance in sports. I think real life is about continuing to improve what we know and to enhance our ability. So I think everything right. we do is let about me, cognitive enhancement. Let your opponents respond to the, the question of the analogy, in which essentially in sports it's called cheating. So I'll, let me put it that way. If it's cheating in sports, is it cheating in the classroom? Some aspects which are different, I think, is just the sheer amount of people concerned. Professional athletes or, you know... Uh, Olympic athletes, it's a very small crowd. Talking about college students is a huge amount of people who would basically go some kind of massive experimentation of trying these drugs without, you know, due knowledge about their effects and efficacy. So I think, you know, there are interesting parallels. I'm just, you know, the the magnitude of the context is really different. Anjan, did you want to comment on that? I just want to make one point about the the sports analogy, which is that the analogy itself breaks down in some ways because there are certain kinds of enhancements we are comfortable with in sports. So, for example, beta blockers that reduce tremors, uh, golfers use this because it makes them putt better. We don't have a problem with that. People get, in baseball, retinal surgeries to improve their vision better than 2020. We don't seem to have a problem with that. So it's not that we are uncomfortable with enhancements in sports. There are specific kinds, and that needs to be examined. To the gentleman in the red shirt at the back. Uh, My name is Darren. I'm a PhD student here at George Washington University. Uh, My question goes to the side opposing the motion. What is the principled reason that says something is an okay enhancement and something is not an okay enhancement? As a student, I drink many cups of coffee in the morning to get me going so I can get my coding done. How is that different than me taking a pill? Thank you. We were hoping we would get to the coffee question. (laughs) 
It's a great question, and I, I'd like to see where you draw the line on it. The difference that we're trying to draw attention to is the way in which certain kinds of medications can make, indeed, competition much, much tougher. So tough that we'll be placed in certain situations that we, none of us actually want to be ever placed in, to have to make choices because other people decided that they're prepared to sacrifice loads of important things. The point is that a medication that makes it possible for people to extend their ability to stay awake, to be productive for an extremely long period of time, when you give people capacities, capacities you know, to extend themselves, what they do is they say, wow, I can now start being more competitive. I can put myself in a better position. The difference here is that it enables people to make choices which will be coercive because they produce pressure on us to sacrifice important things. But the real point of the question is, if coffee does a little of this, what's wrong with taking Ritalin that does a little more of this? What coffee does is does a little bit of this. Well, then it doesn't provide yet a sufficient amount of uh, ability to encroach upon the things that are valuable in our lives. Okay. That's the whole point. Other side on the coffee question? I think it's an utterly arbitrary distinction, and I think it privileges drugs and assumes that drugs other than caffeine are far more powerful than they actually are. Okay, I want to take one more question. In the white shirt. So generally the discussion, and specifically the four team, has talked about this as though these drugs are already legal nationally and they're not controlled substance nationally. But Adderall specifically is illegal to take without a prescription. So approving this resolution means changing a lot of practical realities. Um, So who is actually doing the approving of these drugs and who is providing them? Well done. Let's take it to Eric Racine first. No one has approved those drugs for cognitive enhancement purposes. And how to do that, I think, needs attention. That's why I think we're saying, let's be cautious. Let's figure out how we could actually do that. Second of all, where are the drugs coming from? I think it's an open question. Black market, reselling. So I think that speaks to the really fuzzy practices that are going on and you know it speaks to the value of the claims that these drugs have enhancement effects they could have huge placebo effects that's something we we can probably bet on well the underground market is certainly of concern which is why it needs to be brought to the surface so i would argue that we need to be open about this and that uh that there is discussion about this Uh, and so students are educated on how to use this as safely as we know how to use them. The fact of this going underground is the reason that we need to be able to talk about this openly. That concludes round two, where our motion is college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Now we move on to round three. Round three, each debater will make brief closing statements. Speaking first, to support the motion in his closing statement, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs, Anjan Chatterjee, professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. So I'm a morning person. I typically wake up at 5 and am at my desk by 6. Late in the afternoon, early evening, like now, my mind is a mess. If you think my comments had any semblance of coherence, you should be thankful for coffee. We've talked about coffee. Now, if we were in 16th century Mecca, or 17th century Istanbul, or 18th century Sweden or Prussia, my act of drinking coffee would have been illegal. I am very glad to be here and now. 
I went to college in the 1970s. As the joke goes, back then, people did drugs to check out. Now kids do drugs to check in. So the college experience for me was an important time in which I got to find out who I was and what the contours of my personality was. Importantly, it was a time to make choices and even a time to make mistakes. And I'm glad for that opportunity uh, to have done that. If you think that college is a special time, one in which students discover who they are, and importantly, they discover what their values are by acting and making choices, then you should vote for the motion that college students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Thank you. Thank you, Anjan Chatterjee. And that's the motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And here, making his closing statement against the motion, Eric Racine, director of the Neuroscience Research Institute at the IRCM. Enhancement, in principle, could be a laudable goal. The problem is smart drugs are just the wrong ends to get to it. Actually, it's a dead end or no means to get there. But I would hate to be arguing only against tonight. Unfortunately, I think there are genuine ways for individuals and societies to improve themselves. It's not rocket science. It's not smart drugs. It's basic and plain and boring. It's education. We know from societies that invest the most in their education systems that that pans out in terms of increasing socioeconomic status. And also, we also interestingly know that investing in in education and childhood literacy is one of the best ways to improve the health status of individuals and populations. So I think, and this is something that has been alluded to throughout the debate, if we're really genuinely committed to enhancement and improvement of individual lives and collectivities, the only thing we lack is really political will to make this a priority and use the means that we know that are efficacious, they're not controversial, it's not rocket science, but it works. Thank you, Eric Racine. The motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs, and here summarizing her position supporting the motion, Nita Farahani, professor of law and philosophy at Duke University and director of Duke Science and Society. I have a confession to make. I take smart drugs. When I'm tired, I drink coffee. When I'm anxious or I can't sleep, I take tranquilizers or sleeping medications. I've tried beta blockers, modafinil, memory enhancers, and I've been lucky enough to have a legitimate prescription for all of these things. But that's a matter of luck and privileged access. For me, the drugs can take the edge off. They can enable me to concentrate. They can enable me to spend all day long concentrating on Facebook or all day long concentrating on a piece of scholarship that I want to write. They might motivate you and give you abilities, but they don't solve for you whether or not you choose to spend your time on something like work or somewhere else. I've had more confidence at times. I've been more relaxed at others. I've been more awake when arriving in international destinations. I think these are all great things. I've done so fully informed of risks and benefits of taking drugs that alter my brain and my bodily chemistry. I've done so without fear of reprisal, and I've done so as a choice, a decidedly personal one, an individual one, and one that has improved my life. Not everyone should take smart drugs. They don't benefit everyone the same. There are risks and benefits to each and every one of them. 
But that's true of every choice we make in life. And college students should be empowered to choose whether or not to take smart drugs. And colleges are in the best position to empower them to do so. I urge you to vote for the resolution. Vote for liberty. Vote for choice. Vote to allow college students to take smart drugs. Thank you. Thank you, Nita Farhani. And that is the motion. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. And here's summarizing her position against the motion, Nicole Vincent, a professor of philosophy, law, and neuroscience at Georgia State University. I never actually thought that I would be a professor. When I was 17, I, well, I left home. I dropped out of high school. I spent two years taking drugs and going to warehouse parties. Seriously. I was very lucky in that I met somebody who set me on the right track. And over literally 20 years of education, um, at the age of 39, I was awarded two research grants, huge research grants, one in the Netherlands to research the social effects and legal effects of smart drugs, and another one in Australia to do with law and neuroscience. <laughs> I said, yeah, give it to me. And I took both of them. And I really bit off a lot more than I could chew. I had to travel between the two countries, and I had no time. My relationship was going down the gurgler. When morafenol was offered to me, I did take morafenol. And guess what? It indeed increased my abilities. It increased my capacities. I was extremely productive. Look at my publication record, around about 2011. It's great. <laughs> um, the problem wasn't that uh, this had any bad effects. The problem was that I felt like an undersaturated sponge. And everyone was still expecting that Nicole Vincent, right? And they kept throwing me opportunities, and I kept taking them up. A year and a half after I started this project, my relationship broke up. Seven years down the gurgler. Now, I'm, this is not a story about take more and your relationships will, broke, will break up. What, the problem was that I hadn't reassessed what I actually valued. I created a fantastic opportunity for myself to make choices, which would then lead me to sacrifice the very things that I claimed were valuable. We are not against smart drugs. We are pro-choice. We are just trying to get you to figure out what are the things that are really important. Thank you, Nicole Vincent. And that concludes closing statements and round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. So now the results are all in. Again, the motion is this. College students should be allowed to take smart drugs. Remember, we have you vote twice, and it's the team whose numbers move the most in percentage point terms between the first and the second votes will be declared our winner. So let's look at the first vote. On the motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs before the arguments were made. 27% of our audience here in Washington agreed. 44% were against the motion. And 29% were undecided. Those are the first results. In the second vote, let's look at the first team. Their first vote was 27%. Their second vote was 59%. They picked up 32 percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's see the team against the motion. Their first vote was 44%. Their second vote, 33%. They lost 11 percentage points. That means the team arguing for the motion, college students should be allowed to take smart drugs, has won this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was presented in partnership with FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. It was held at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby, Rob Christensen, and Kristen Muller are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa, director of research. 
and I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, Van Greenfield, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Alan Kasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, Profit Capital Asset Management, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and Daniel H. Stern. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.